Broker Podcast, and I'm Roger Pelkey Jr. Today I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story of how the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or IPCC, has for more than a decade denied, ignored, and misrepresented the science of disasters and climate change. I was motivated to research and tell this story by a new report just released by a group in the Netherlands on the most recent IPCC assessment, its sixth. That Dutch group goes by the name Climate Intelligence, and they have been critical of climate science and policy. However, their critical stance is not a reason to ignore their claims. My work is referenced extensively in the new Dutch report, which alleges that the IPCC has not just ignored my peer-reviewed research, but that of dozens of other researchers who have written on climate and disasters. In fact, my work has been so comprehensively ignored that the authors of the Dutch report dredged up a nickname first given to me over a decade ago by New York Times reporter Andy Revkin. He's back. Lord Voldemort has returned. Do not speak his name. That's right, Voldemort, otherwise known as he who shall not be named in the Harry Potter series. As the authors of the Dutch report write, Roger Pelkey Jr. is a real Voldemort for the IPCC. They do everything to ignore his work, even though it is highly relevant. Indeed, as we document in several chapters of this report, the IPCC avoids mentioning his work so they can draw opposite conclusions. <laughs> yep, that's me, the Voldemort of climate science. You may wonder how I got here. I did too. So today we're going to get into a time machine together, and I'll share one important part of this story. It's a story about how a narrative can overwhelm science. I've not only had a front row seat, but I've been part of the action. Let me give you some background. In the early 1990s, I wrote what must surely be the first PhD dissertation on how climate research might be made most useful to the needs of decision makers. We're then facing the emerging threat of climate change. Back then, I had recognized that climate change was real and significant, and that mitigation and adaptation policies would be necessary. I still believe that. After I got my PhD, I went to work at the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, Colorado, as a postdoc. The project I was working on was focused on disasters, hurricanes and floods in particular. One day in 1995, my boss, the legendary climate impacts researcher Mickey Glantz, came into my office with a copy of Newsweek. That's back when people worked in offices and magazines came in the mail. The Newsweek cover said, blizzards, floods, and hurricanes blame global warming. Mickey said to me, this looks like it's worth exploring. And so that launched me into what has turned out to be decades of research and writing on disasters and climate change. At, for the next decade after Mickey came to my office with that news, uh, Newsweek cover, things went great. I published do dozens of peer-reviewed articles. I was widely quoted in the media. I participated in international science advisory committees around the world. I even won awards. One prestigious award was the Roger Ravel Award of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Roger Ravel was a famous climate scientist, and he was the person Al Gore attributed with first teaching him about climate change back when he was in college. I gave my Roger Ravel lecture at the Smithsonian just one month before Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, came out. Then, everything changed. I am Al Gore. I used to be the next president of the United States of America. Temperature increases are taking place all over the world, and that's causing stronger storms. This is the biggest crisis in the history of this country. Early this morning, Hurricane Katrina slammed into New Orleans. Al Gore's movie emphasized Hurricane Katrina as an example of the consequences of climate change. In fact, the movie's promotional poster had a hurricane coming out of a smokestack. 
Most people don't realize it, but the hurricane was spinning the wrong way. It turned out to be a good metaphor for how science of disasters and climate change would evolve in coming years and decades. Seemingly science-like, but not quite accurate. I kept doing research and publishing, but I started to get a sense that things had changed. Environmental advocacy groups and the media started to increasingly associate extreme weather events with climate change. And I started to be the target of highly politicized attacks, especially from a group called the Center for American Progress, headed by John Podesta. About that time, I noted curiosity in the fourth assessment report of the IPCC related to my research. Leading up to that assessment, I had organized a major workshop in partnership with Munich Reinsurance, one of the world's largest reinsurance companies, and we focused on disasters and climate change. Partnering with Munich Re turned out to be a great idea because they owned a castle outside Munich where our meeting was held, and it had a beer garden out back. It was a great workshop. Our goal was to assist the IPCC in its assessment work by bringing together the world's experts on disasters and climate change and to produce a report to help inform that fourth assessment. Our meeting was a huge success, resulting in 20 unanimous consensus statements, which would be published in Science Magazine, one of the leading journals in the world. So when the fourth assessment came out, like many researchers who hope to see their work referenced, I quickly turned to the discussion of disasters and climate change. Much to my surprise, our consensus report was not mentioned. Instead, the report referenced one of the white papers that had been prepared for our workshop, and the IPCC claimed incorrectly that the white paper had suggested that climate change may be behind the rising costs of disasters. Well, I knew this wasn't true. In fact, the consensus statement from the workshop, signed onto by the author of that white paper, was that a signal of climate change could not be seen in the rising toll of disasters. I was further intrigued by the fact that the IPCC included a graph that plotted a time series of rising temperatures next to a time series of rising disaster costs and suggested that the rising temperatures were causing the increased losses. This was wrong also, because as we concluded as a, at our workshop, and as was generally well known, the overwhelming most important factor behind rising disaster costs was more people, more property, more wealth exposed to extreme weather, not changes in extreme weather itself. I could not track down what had happened uh, that let the IPCC to make such a significant mistake or why it miscited a white paper to our workshop. It also ignored our workshop consensus that we had prepared explicitly for the IPCC. I wrote about these issues on my blog and moved on to other things. A few years later, ClimateGate happened. A hacker in England got hold of emails between leading scientists, which skeptics say show a clear effort to raise fears about global warming and hide evidence against it. The ClimateGate emails did not tell us that climate change was a hoax or that the books had been cooked. But the emails did reveal a number of leading scientists going well beyond the norms of expected scientific practices. I was mentioned multiple times in the emails. And in one exchange, two scientists who were authors of the IPCC report, scientists named Phil Jones and Kevin Trenberth, discussed how they would keep out of the report any mention of a paper I had led on what's called the detection and attribution of trends in hurricanes. The paper, which was co-authored by leading tropical cyclone experts, including the director of the National Hurricane Center, concluded that a climate change signal could not presently be detected in historical hurricane data and that the wide natural variability in storm incidents meant that it would be quite a while before that would occur. The IPCC, in fact, did not cite that paper, and since then it's been cited more than 250 times in the literature. For me, the ClimateGate emails reveal that there was some politicking going on backstage, so to speak, in the production of IPCC reports and that the literature was not being assessed based solely on scientific criteria. Just over a month after the ClimateGate emails were released, the climate science community was again rocked 
when a major error was identified in the IPCC assessment report related to an apocalyptic prediction about the melting of Himalayan glaciers. That error set off another media frenzy, and reporters, who are apparently a different breed than climate reporters of today, went looking for other possible errors in the IPCC report. That's how the error I had identified related to disasters and climate change came to light in the broader public. The Sunday Times in London wrote a high-profile story on the fact that the IPCC had miscited a white paper to our workshop in support of a false claim and at including a misleading graph in the report which had never appeared in the scientific literature. All of this was against IPCC principles. So what did the IPCC do? Did they take the claim seriously, investigate, and then correct, and then move on, as you would expect? Ha! No. The IPCC issued a press release the very next day after the Sunday Times news story came out, calling the claims of errors, quote, misleading and baseless, and called the report's discussion of disasters and climate change a balanced treatment of a complicated and important issue. Science by press release. It seemed to me more like damage control than a careful scientific assessment. What happened next was incredible, and I doubt it would ever happen today. The British institution set up a debate two weeks later in London on the question of disasters and climate change, and specifically how it had been handled by the IPCC. I was invited to participate, and so too was the author of the relevant text in the IPCC that I had criticized. He was a scientist named Robert Muir Wood, who worked for a catastrophe modeling firm called RMS. For some reason, a PR guy was also invited to oppose me, a guy named Bob Ward, a spokesperson for Nicholas Stern, who had written the then-famous Stern Review on Climate Change. I had known both Robert and Bob for a while, and I got on good with both of them. Um, I liked them. Good guys. Despite our disagreements over disasters and climate change. I didn't mind the two versus one debate format. I already knew it wasn't a fair debate, since I had the facts on my side, and they did not. The debate took place in front of a packed audience of several hundred people in the impressive lecture hall of the British Institution. It was recorded, but I never listened to it afterwards. As time went by, the website where it was housed was deleted, and I had thought the recording was lost to history. That is, until this week. I was able to locate and download a copy of the debate, and then listen to it for the first time. So in what follows is a trip back to February 2010, when it was actually acceptable to debate and discuss issues related to climate science. How the debate transpired and what happened after is an important story of how I became Voldemort. Are you ready? Let's take a trip back in time. Yeah, sorry, I'm not quite as famous as David Shookman, but I'll try and be as good uh, if I can. Um, my name's James Randerson. I edit The Guardian's environment website, which is uh, environmentguardian.co.uk. And um, this uh, last few weeks, I guess, have been quite an uncomfortable time to be a, a climate scientist, because in November we had the release of the emails that were uh, stolen from the University of East Anglia, um, all sorts of claims flying around about what those emails say, but I think it's fair to say that some of them have made pretty uncomfortable reading uh, for people in the climate science camp, if you like. Um, then after that, you had the, the, the sort of almost total failure of the Copenhagen talks. And then in January, uh, a report in New Scientist that, uh, that, that, that showed that um, the, uh, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had made a mistake over, the, over a claim about when uh, the Himalayan glaciers were expected to, to melt. Uh, the date they had was 2035, and that was about 300 years out. 
And everyone agrees that was wrong and it shouldn't have, been, shouldn't have happened in the way it was and the IPCC have, uh, uh, have apologised and said it shouldn't have happened that way. But uh, today we're going to talk about, well, we're going to focus on uh, a separate issue to them, although I, I think in the questions, if, if you have, uh, you know, if you want to come back to some of those issues, you're very welcome. Our, our panel are, are, are happy to talk about those things too. But very specifically, we're talking about um, uh, the, the, the whether global warming has had a, 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 an impact on disasters around the world, like, like hurricanes and and so on, um, and in particular, uh, the uh, you know I think the incident that has sparked this is is another claim about the IPCC's accuracy, um, and uh, one of our, our panel, Professor Roger uh, Pilkey, has said that on his blog that the IPC treatment of the science of disasters and climate change is an even worse breach of scientific standards than the errors associated with Himalayan glaciers. Now I should say that the IPCC totally defends its treatment of, of natural disasters. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how the, how the discussion goes on. This is 2023 Roger again. That was James Randerson of The Guardian, who moderated the debate. Before we got started, James took a poll of the audience on the debate topic, and the overwhelming winner before the debate was not sure. So as he introduced us, James mentioned that we had our work cut out for us. Whichever side of the debate you're on, you've got some convincing to do here. So <laughs> we're going to kick off uh, with, I'll, I'll just introduce everyone first, um, but first to speak will be Dr. Uh, Robert Muirwood, who is the Chief Research Officer, Risk Management Solutions, um, and it was uh, his work that was at issue in uh, the, the supposed mistake by the IPCC, should the, should the work have been cited in the way that it was when it prior to it being peer-reviewed, and we can get into some of that later. Um, uh, next on the bill is um, uh, Bob Ward, who is the Policy and Communication Director at the Grantham Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. And uh, third to speak will be Professor Roger Pilkey, Jr., who is Professor of Environmental Studies at the Centre for Science and Technology Policy Research at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I guess I was surprised to hear both Robert Muirwood and Bob Ward speak before me, and neither chose to make any defense of the IPCC. Muirwood spoke about research that he had led that was published several years after the IPCC report was published, uh, work that was not finalized before the IPCC deadline for inclusion. Bob Ward talked about how he tries to communicate climate change. Here's Muirwood. The sort of how this got mixed up in the last couple of weeks is this kind of whole story about what, what were the dates when things were published, what was, what was peer-reviewed, what wasn't. I don't really want to go into too much detail on it. Muirwood didn't want to get into too much detail. And that was fine, as we'd get into those details later in the debate. I'll skip over Bob Ward's talk here, but I will make the full 90-minute audio available in the episode notes for anyone who'd like to listen to the whole thing. Here is the short presentation I gave. All right, well, it, it doesn't seem like there's much of a debate. I think those were two uh, pretty solid presentations, and uh, you're going to get a, a similar view. And I, I think the, the, the focus of the debate that I'm going to present is to the IPCC uh, rather than my colleagues on the panel here. Um, I'll give you my conclusions first, and then I'll work back from there. Um, there is no signal of increasing greenhouse gases or temperatures in the rising toll of disasters. Um, this is unequivocal, and I'll, I'll show why. Um, societal factors alone are sufficient to explain the long-term increase in disaster losses. 
there are some things that this debate, this discussion is not about, um, and I just want to make those absolutely clear up front, that humans do influence the climate system, including crucially uh, through greenhouse gas emissions, especially carbon dioxide. Uh, in the future, as Bob mentioned, scientists expect a greater frequency of extreme events. Um, I'm a strong advocate for decarbonizing the global economy and improving adaptation, which we're not debating or discussing tonight, but uh, that's another topic I, I study and would like to uh, discuss. But really importantly, particularly in this time when science is uh, under the, 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 the microscope of public attention, um, the policy imperative to respond to climate change does not justify misrepresenting or exaggerating the science. And I would say quite to the contrary. The science has to be absolutely clear, clean, with, beyond reproach. And uh, in my judgment, as I'll argue to you, the IPCC has fallen short of that standard, uh, maybe on a number of topics, but certainly on a topic for which I have expertise, which uh, I would argue places experts, scientists, scholars in very difficult positions. All right, so this is, I think, the third time you've seen this figure. Um, <laughs> it will be on the test. Um, this is Munich reinsurance, uh, global increasing losses. Uh, in, in 2005, um, I was having a debate with a colleague who I have a lot of respect for, Peter Hoppe at Munich Re. Uh, and I was arguing, well, I don't think we can see greenhouse gas signal here. He says, oh, well, we're pretty sure at Munich Re that we can see it. Um, and we decided to have a workshop. Um, and the workshop was uh, the one that Robert referred to in Hohenkammer, Germany. Um, to try to, to ask, can we get a consensus? Can we, uh, at the time, we thought we'd get what we called a consensus dissensus. We'd agree on the topics where we disagree. Um, if you want to understand this graph of increasing losses, this is the same graph, but it's broken down by phenomena. Uh, red is earthquake, tsunami, volcanic eruption. Um, I don't think anyone's making any claims that those are related to climate change. Um, the, all of the action with respect to the economic cost of disasters is various forms of windstorms and floods, which are the uh, the green and blue parts of the graph. If you can explain what's going on in windstorms and floods around the world, you'll, you'll probably get about 95% of the costs uh, setting aside the earthquakes. So windstorms and floods were where we focused our attention. So just a brief note on this workshop. This is the workshop that uh, Robert and colleagues prepared their, their uh, background paper for. Um, it was, you can see the sponsors. We had uh, international participation. Uh, we had these background papers prepared. Um, we actually reached a consensus of all participants at this workshop from a range of different backgrounds. And everything that we uh, concluded was consistent with the science working group. So this is the, the science findings that Bob uh, just presented. Here are three of our 20 uh, consensus statements. And if you want, um, I have a website at the end. You can find them. Um, but for the, for the discussion today, the, the, these three are most important. Um, first, analysis of long-term records of disaster losses indicates societal change and economic development are the principal factors responsible for the documented increasing losses to date. Um, so I think we've heard that already, uh, not at all controversial. Um, because of issues related to data quality, the stochastic nature of extreme event impacts, length of time series, and various societal factors present in the disaster loss record, it is still not possible to determine the portion of the increase in damages that might be attributed to climate change due to greenhouse gas emissions. And then we look forward and we say, given these issues with the handling of the data, measurement, uncertainty, randomness, in the near future, the quantitative link, and we said attribution, that's an IPCC technical term, of trends in storms and flood losses to climate changes related to greenhouse gas emissions is unlikely to be answered unequivocally. Okay, 2023, Roger, here again. Let me explain what I just presented back in 2010. I was summarizing the consensus results of the Hohenkammer workshop. That's the one where Robert Muir Wood presented his white paper on disaster data, in which we had developed 20 consensus statements that were, in the end, ignored by the IPCC. 
I had just highlighted three of those consensus statements to the audience in London that night, emphasizing that we'd agreed that we could not identify a signal of human-caused climate change in the disaster record. Okay, let's jump ahead a bit in my presentation. Back to 2010 we go. So this is the answer to the question, how much would hurricanes cost the United States if each hurricane season occurred with 2005 property levels? We tried to take out uh, the societal change signal. Now, there was some discussion in the previous two talks about changes in vulnerability, more concrete building practices. We have a, a check on this. If the statistics of hurricanes, the physical entities, their intensity and frequency is different than the normalized statistics that we get out, then we know we have some residual bias. We know that there's something else going on that we haven't accounted for. But importantly, when we look at the, uh, the, the hurricane loss record, the statistics of hurricanes, so the number of storms making landfall and their intensity at landfall, matches up perfectly with the statistics of our normalized result. So there may be this vulnerability signal, but it's not large enough to throw off our, our statistics. There's no residual bias. Um, we also have other tests. We see the signal of El Nino, La Nina, for example, here. So we're, we're pretty confident that, um, that we have, to a first order, removed the, the societal signal. Um, the black line there is an 11-year uh, moving average. And there is no increase. And I want to point something out that I think that's important to this discussion. If I just blow up, zoom in from 1970 to 2005, this is what it looks like. Yes, there is an increase from 1970 to 2005. But for better or worse, I have access to a data set that goes back to 1900. And I can pick various dates and come up with different trends. But over the period of record, and I think that's important, over the period of record, there's no increase. Now, I updated this just for this presentation on the airplane flight over. And if anyone's interested, I can give you a website. You can download the data and play with it. That dark black line is what Excel thinks is the, uh, the linear trend line. So there is no increase. And in fact, this matches up perfectly. In the United States, there's been no trend in landfalling hurricanes. Okay? You may ask, uh, well, so this is the Schmidt paper that Bob uh, discussed. Um, what he didn't mention is that they conclude with, with this. There's no evidence yet of any trend in tropical cyclone losses that can be attributed directly to anthropogenic climate change. They conclude that because they have replicated our study using different damage data and a different normalization method, and, and they've gotten the same results. So that gives us some confidence. Now, where are trends observed? You may have heard about Carrie Emanuel's work or other work about increasing hurricanes, and our work is perfectly consistent with that. Um, if we break down the, the North Atlantic Ocean into five areas with an equal number of observations of hurricanes, and you look at where the trends occur, it's not where storms make landfall. That's that's consistent with this notion that there has not been an increase in landfalling storms. So yes, the, the, the number of storms and their intensity has increased in the East Atlantic. 2023 Roger here again. That ended the part of the talk where I got the audience up to speed on what the scientific literature said as the IPCC was preparing its last report. So in the next few minutes of the talk, I explain how the IPCC ignored and misrepresented that literature. Listen carefully. Back to London we go. So let's talk for a moment as I wrap this up about what the IPCC did and why I have some trouble with it. Um, the IPCC included this graph, which I don't think you've seen yet, which shows uh, global temperature anomaly in red and catastrophe loss in green. I mean, it's, it's a smooth graph, and 
Um, anyone who knows anything about statistics, um, you smooth data and then take a correlation at your peril. Uh, but this has an implication. Right? If you see this, you think they're putting these together on the same graph to show something. And the text doesn't give you a, a disclaimer or anything. It refers to Robert's paper, uh, which actually doesn't have this graph or the data. It's, as he said, a, a subsequent publication. Now, an expert reviewer commented on this graph. This reviewer said, I think you should include this text. I propose, since 1970, the global normalized results do not show any statistically significant correlation with global temperatures. Uh, to remove the end of the paragraph and the figure, because it can mislead a reader. Uh, the IPCC thought that comment wasn't <laughs> worth responding to. Here's another comment. I think this is inappropriate. Um, they're talking about the discussion of hurricanes. It leads the reader into interpreting recent events in a particular way without providing supporting information. This suggestion that the hurricane losses in 2004 and 2005 draw Pelkey's result into question needs to be supported with a reference or a solid in-chapter assessment. What does Pelkey think about this? Well, that's me. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm fairly easy to find. Uh, one minute. Here's what the IPCC responded. I believe Pelkey agrees that adding 2004 and 2005 has the potential to change his earlier conclusions, at least about the absence of a trend in US cat losses. So you've seen my data that was updated uh, in 2004 and 2005, which was published two months before this was written. Um, I find this very troubling from the perspective of a researcher. So here's the summary. The IPCC had a misleading graph. The graph doesn't appear in the literature in a subsequent publication or before. Uh, the IPCC violated its own procedures. It ignored its expert reviewers. Uh, and it made up a misleading response about my views. Still, the science says what the science says. There's no signal yet, maybe we'll see it soon, of increasing temperatures and the rising toll of disasters. The IPCC failed comprehensively on this issue. Um, it put out a statement just earlier this week saying that these assertions are baseless, without merit, which I find amazing. Um, anyone who takes a look at this would see that it flies what the science says. Uh, that should be common sense and what is abundantly obvious. Um, this is not a, a nuanced or ambiguous issue. It, it is fairly obvious. I'm of the view that if the data doesn't support a claim, then you don't make the claim. So. I do want to give my colleagues here, I want to emphasize that I don't think there's much of a debate here over the, the substance. Um, the paper that was published uh, by Robert and his colleagues said, we find insufficient evidence to claim a statistical relationship between global temperature increase and normalized catastrophe losses. It's a very responsible statement in line with the literature. I don't think there's any, any dispute there um, over what the data actually says. Here's what Bob said in The Guardian last week, which I thought was another excellent statement. Um, it is difficult to tell to what extent, if any, climate change has also already affected past disaster losses around the world. Extreme weather events are rare, so identifying small trends is difficult when losses vary so much from year to year, creating a lot of noise in the data set. And many competing factors contribute to the overall pattern. Maybe the IPCC could enlist Bob as an author in the next report and put this statement in it. In the first question after the talk, James Randerson of The Guardian asked Robert Muir Wood, the IPCC author, if the graph that I had questions about should have been in the IPCC report. Listen to what Muir Wood said. Okay, um, before we open it out completely, I, just, I want to just clarify a couple of things. One is, um, Robert, that, that graph of the smoothed, um, the smoothed data put against the smoothed data of temperature, where did that come from and where did it sit in the, in the assessment report? Uh, 
Um, well, I mean, I, I am the author of that graph, um, and, um, and it was produced, I would say, informally, and it's ended up in, the, in annex materials in the IPCC. And um, I think there is... Do you is, think it should have been there? Um, personally, I think it should not have been there. Muirwood was also asked about the misciting of his paper to a paper that did not meet the IPCC deadline for inclusion, the white paper he prepared for our workshop. When the miscited paper was published, it actually said the opposite of what the IPCC had claimed. Here's Muir Wood's response. It hadn't been peer-reviewed at that point. I mean, do you think it, they should even have considered it? Uh, well, I mean, I think this is that you're you're putting a guillotine through uh, a, a debate when you when you have a closing date for for papers to be cited, and I think that this is one of these issues which is which is um, completely unresolved. The next IPCC report, they'll put a guillotine which may go through papers being published, and it will probably still be unresolved. So, um, I, I mean, as I say, I feel that I, th I mean, I feel the IPCC has. I, I personally think it did a reasonable job, but. The issue is this issue. The, 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 this 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 question is so. I mean, everybody is gathered here because it's such an important and an interesting and deep one that actually it probably needs to be given a much greater focus. You need to have a different way of trying to assemble what is the current state of knowledge on it and and to update it. Because I mean, one of the things about the IPCC reports is that you know, they are frozen at a particular point in time, and the debate moves on, and they're still frozen. And actually, um, you know, we have. Wikipedia, which is able to update itself with new information as it happens, and actually, I think the expectation is that that the 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 gap between new knowledge and what the IPC states, we we we're living in a world where we shouldn't have those kind of gaps going forward. It should be live and. So the uh, At the end of the debate, the moderator James Randerson looked again to the audience to get their views on how it turned out. Here's the final vote. The question at hand, and if we can agree on the same rules of engagement as last time, <laughs> that, would be, that would be preferable. Um, has global warming increased the toll of disasters? We've had a lot of, um, uh, a lot of detail on the science now, uh, so one hopes that the sort of don't know camp might have, might, won't win it, but you never know. Um, so, do you agree with this statement? If you agree with the statement that global warming has increased the toll of disasters, please put your hand up now. Well, much fewer than before, I think. I think, I think everyone would agree. Many fewer. Um, uh, and uh, global warming has not increased the toll of disasters. Uh, I think that's an increase on before. And, uh, and the don't knows, abstentions, and don't cares. I, I, I think you've got it, Roger. <laughs> that night in London, I had quote-unquote won the debate. I put one into scare quotes because it wasn't much of a debate as you've heard. The evidence was so overwhelming on the science of disasters and climate change, and so too on the missteps by the IPCC, that the debate only could have turned out as it did. Afterwards, that night, Robert, Bob, and I joined each other in the pub, had a very enjoyable time, which is exactly how things should go after a debate on climate science and assessment. Let me add a postscript. After the debate, I was sure that the issue of disasters and climate change would at long last start making its way back to something more closely approximating scientific integrity. Boy, was I wrong. Not long after the debate, I was contacted by a reporter named Christina Larson, who wrote for the magazine Foreign Policy. Her email to me said she wanted to talk about the IPCC and recent controversies. Great, I thought. Finally, some intelligent discussion of the IPCC and how it might be improved. I spoke to Larson and discussed many of the issues I had raised in the debate in London. Two weeks later, her piece came out.
It was titled, Foreign Policy's Guide to Climate Skeptics. I was featured as one of the most evil climate skeptics in the world, and the magazine said my qualification for that title was my questioning of a certain graph in the IPCC and my statement that hurricanes had not increased. The article was broadcast around the world, amplified and promoted by the Center for American Progress for years after. Four years later, I was attacked by the White House, and soon after that, I was under investigation by the U.S. Congress for testimony I had given on disasters and climate change. After that experience, I stepped down as the director of the center I had led at the University of Colorado, after being told that the continuing university support was going to be uncertain. Fortunately, I've landed on my feet and I've since thrived. For the IPCC, however, its latest report, published last year, indicates that it is still struggling with accurately representing the science of disasters and climate change. But that's a story for another time. Thanks for listening. With a beautiful wife.